Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today we are finally, 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 finally going to talk about infrastructure. Because in today's global economy, first-class jobs gravitate to first-class infrastructure. 21st century businesses need 21st century infrastructure. I'm calling on Congress to produce a bill that generates at least $1.5 trillion for the new infrastructure investment that our country so desperately needs. Modern infrastructure that our economy needs. Infrastructure week. World-class infrastructure. Infrastructure week continues. We found that Donald Trump uh, did not follow through with infrastructure week. Is it infrastructure week? It is the infrastructure dance. One step forward, one step back, cha-cha-cha. That's right, guys. In case you haven't heard, the wait is finally over. The Senate reached a bipartisan agreement on infrastructure. The bill is out. And in case you're looking for your next summer read... I would recommend uh, checking it out. It's a cool 2,700 pages. You know, just a a light summer beach read. And if that doesn't entice you, don't worry. You don't have to read through it because I did. And we're going to dig into it today. But um, before we do, I want to talk to you a little bit about why investing in infrastructure is so important. Before you fall asleep or leave to go listen to Joe Rogan, hear me out. I get it. Resurfacing roads, deferred maintenance, public works, Amtrak, highway studies. These are the least sexy words in government. And that is really saying a lot because it's government. It's not like we're talking about uh, the glamorous life of the tech industry. No, 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 no. We're talking government. Infrastructure is boring. John Oliver, a guy that loves making profoundly boring topics interesting, described it like this. Infrastructure. It's our roads, bridges, dams, levees, airports, power grids, basically anything that can be destroyed in an action movie. He's not wrong. Infrastructure is in a near constant fight with the baddest bad guy of all time. Time. Because here's the thing. The last time the U.S. made a major investment in infrastructure was in 1933. FDR passed the New Deal and changed the face of our country. He used infrastructure to directly improve the lives of everybody in America during the Great Depression, and that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. It's a testament to the success of his programs that every single one of us interacts with infrastructure daily. Daily. You can't say that about most of the culture war topics that dominate cable news. Consider abortion. I know that people have really strong feelings about that issue, and again, not weighing into that here, but they aren't literally trying to get an abortion every single day. They aren't actively considering the limitations of the text on Roe v. Wade or, I mean, even voting rights. While I agree that voting rights are critically important, people vote once, maybe twice a year, at most. How often do you drive a car or use the internet? It's more than once or twice a year. That's infrastructure, baby. And we ignore it. Imagine if you bought a car and didn't change the oil, brakes, or tires for 80 years. That's been our approach to infrastructure. Not only are we not investing in new stuff, but we aren't even maintaining our old stuff. And it matters. It matters so much because even though the New Deal was implemented in the 30s, the benefits of New Deal programs have followed me personally my whole life. And I imagine that it's followed you too. If we set aside all of the roads built by the New Deal, 
nearly 800,000 miles. No big deal. And let's set aside the playgrounds that they constructed. 2,000, if you're curious. And we're not even going to talk about the 16,000 miles of water lines that they built. We're just going to set those things aside and get really specific, shall we? Two weeks after I was born, my mom moved us back to Winnemucca, Nevada. It's a tiny town on the east side of Nevada, about two hours away from Reno and a full state away from Las Vegas. Down the street from my grandparents' house, there was this pretty brick building, City Hall. New Deal programs built City Hall, and they painted the murals inside of it. Down the street in the other direction is the fire station. The New Deal built that too. Before they got that, do you know how they fought fires? With buckets, my dude. Buckets. Okay, let's go forward a little bit. When I was five or six, I caught my first fish at Rye Patch, which is a reservoir built by the New Deal. A little ways past Rye Patch is a town called Lovelock. The New Deal gave Lovelock a post office, a school district, a water system, and honestly, a population. Lovelock housed a bunch of New Deal workers and Conservation Corps members, and when those programs shut down, a lot of the people just stuck around. I learned how to swim in a pool that was built by the New Deal. My grandpa fishes at Wild Horse Dam in Elko, which was also built by the New Deal. When I was a little bit older, we moved to Reno, and my elementary school took a class trip to Idlewild Pool, which is a public pool built by the New Deal. When I was in high school, I kissed a boy named Cameron on the Lake Street Bridge downtown. That's a New Deal bridge. So is the Sierra Street Bridge, which I've driven over more times than I can even count. Wingfield Park is smack dab in the middle of downtown. I watched rubber duckies race there. I've seen firework displays there. Um, my friends and I used to hang out there after going to the movies. That wouldn't be there without the New Deal. My college dorm, it was this old historic building. And I know what you're thinking, but no, it was actually not built by the New Deal but it overlooked a lake in the middle of campus that was. <laughs> Boom, New Deal built a lake. The big, beautiful old post office building in downtown Reno was built by the New Deal. And while it isn't a post office anymore, the West Elm that currently operates inside of it sure does look pretty snazzy. During the summer, my family, um, they camp near Boca Dam. I wonder who built that. Uh, spoiler alert, guys, it's the New Deal. I'm just getting started. When I moved to Sacramento, I instantly fell in love with the Tower Bridge. If you've never been, you should Google it. And when you do, just know that it is only half as beautiful in pictures as it is in person. It is a big, bold, and beautiful bright yellow bridge and one of the most iconic pieces of the Sacramento cityscape. It even featured in Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's Academy Award-nominated film that is set in Sacramento. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm obsessed with that movie and I'm obsessed with this bridge. And the New Deal built that. All of the murals in the California State Capitol, those are New Deal murals. There's a beautiful rose garden outside the Capitol in McKinley Park. Not only did the New Deal build that, it also built the park. Every day when I drive to work, I drive on New Deal roads. And that's just my life. Let's zoom out a little bit and take a look at things that might have impacted your lives. Do you like national parks? Who doesn't, right? The New Deal revolutionized national parks. It created eight new ones and 21 national monuments. And if you've ever hiked a national park, there's a pretty good chance that you're hiking on a trail that was originally created by the New Deal. 
If you've ever seen a concert at the Red Rock Amphitheater, the New Deal says you're welcome. If you're one of the 1.3 million people that get water from the Hoover Dam, you owe the New Deal a thank you. Did you know that when that was built, by the way, side note, it was the tallest dam in the world? Can you imagine government infrastructure doing something that innovative? There's more. Okay, Timberline Lodge at Mount Hood, LaGuardia Airport, which, you know, nobody's super thankful for, but at the time, we were very proud. Blue Ridge Parkway, the Lincoln Tunnel, the San Antonio Riverwalk, the New Deal planted 3 billion trees. It created 20 million jobs, playgrounds, school furniture, trails, water lines, power lines, public pools. I mean, our great-grandparents built America. They built it for us. And we haven't held up our end of the bargain. We've passed the buck. We've skipped out on the bill. We've dined and dashed. It's been like this for decades. In the 1980s, the book America in Ruins, dramatic title, warned that spending on public works projects was actually decreasing at a really rapid rate and that the nation's public facilities were wearing out faster than they were being replaced. One of its authors warned Congress that one in every five U.S. bridges was in need of major overhaul or a total reconstruction and that New York City was losing 100 million gallons of water every single day because of aging water lines. And that was in the 80s. We're not doing much better now. And why? Because much of the nation's infrastructure is controlled by the public sector, right? And its upkeep is supported by the taxpayers, people like you and me. And let me ask you this. How do you feel about the price of gas? It's too damn high, right? Right. I mean, it is too damn high. But much of the funding for maintaining highways and bridges comes from federal and state gas taxes. And increasing the taxes is politically risky for any elected official because it pisses off people like you and me. So even though today's fuel-efficient cars are actually getting more miles and put more wear and tear on the roads per gallon of gas, we still don't want to pay for it. To make matters worse, preventative maintenance isn't the sexy stuff that dreams are made of. Obama didn't run on repairs and responsible maintenance. He ran on change. Politicians who face re-election are not exactly incentivized to spend money on maintaining existing infrastructure. They're incentivized to spend money on shiny new projects that will impress their constituents, who are people like you and me. The other problem is that infrastructure is largely outside of plain view. Yeah, we see roads, we see bridges, but we don't see signs of stress. I mean... You don't see the sewer lines, you don't, um, you don't see water treatment plants, you rarely go check out dams, and even if you did, would you really know what you were looking at? Probably not. We don't know what infrastructure looks like until it collapses, so we aren't exactly inspired to vote, donate, or pay taxes to candidates that want to help prevent that. I'm telling you all of this because I think that people like you and me have a very important role to play when it comes to infrastructure. We have to care about it, and I know it's not particularly exciting, but you know what is? Having clean water, connecting to the internet, driving over a bridge without worrying about it collapsing, and I'm not being catastrophic. The consequences of our failure to invest in infrastructure are hitting home for millions of Americans, like right now. In 2007, the I-35 Mississippi Bridge in Minneapolis collapsed. That killed 13 people. The dam failure in Midland, Michigan forced 10,000 people to evacuate. They called it a 500-year flood. A little bit closer to home for me, the Paradise Fire in California killed 85 people and destroyed an entire town. And that was caused by a 100-year-old power line. 
Most recently, the condo collapse in Miami killed 97 people. Roads buckling during the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, wildfires and drought ravaging the West Coast. It's bad. According to our infrastructure report card, 42% of bridges in the United States are more than 50 years old. And more than 46,000 of them are rated as structurally deficient. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers estimates that the average age of the country's dams is approximately 60 years old, which is a bit of a problem because dams are generally built to safely last about 50 years. So all across the country, we have 91,000 dams that are 10 years past the expiration date. But for the first time on this podcast, I am very happy to report Congress is meeting the moment. That's right, baby. Last week, the Senate voted to begin debate on the infrastructure deal. And on Sunday, we got the official text. And now, one Sunday later, debate has begun. And before I dive into what's in it, I want to cover a couple of things. First, this vote was super bipartisan. If even one member of either party signs on, they will call a bill bipartisan. But this bill actually got 50 Democrats and 17 Republican senators. So that's not just like a one-off. That is truly bipartisan. Roy Blunt of Missouri, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, Mike Crapo of Idaho, that's a rough name, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, John Ho... Mm. John, I can't say your name, but you're from North Dakota, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Jim Risch of Idaho, Mitt Romney of Utah, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Todd Young of Indiana, and finally, as much as it pains me to say it, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. That's right, guys. Even Mitch weak-chinned McConnell voted for it. That's how popular infrastructure is. Literally, the Grim Reaper himself cannot vote it down. For the record, I regret saying literally just then, as I was being hyperbolic. Um, He's not... The actual Grim Reaper. But honestly, do we know for a fact that he's not? I don't know. I don't know. Jury's still out on that one, guys. Anyway, okay. Back to the bill. The $1 trillion bill includes $550 billion in new spending and about $450 billion in previously approved funds. And that money is dedicated to hard infrastructure, which is roads, bridges, planes, trains, automobiles, the whole shtick. That's a pretty quick breakdown of a 2,000-page bill, right? So let's talk brass tacks. Let's talk about what the hell all that means. Let's talk about what all that spending is actually going to buy or what they're trying to achieve. So the goals of the bill break down like this. They want to modernize and expand transit and rail, fix our busted-ass roads and bridges, get electric vehicle charging stations all along major U.S. highways, including small towns and rural communities, Build thousands of electric school buses and transit buses to drive down harmful emissions. Get rid of lead pipes in our drinking water. Um, Just a note there. So lead pipes were actually outlawed in the 80s. But to this day, 10 million American families and 400,000 schools and daycares still have them. The bill wants to get rid of that and uh, get rid of all lead pipes and service lines and make sure that everybody has access to clean drinking water. Um, They want to make sure that the 44 million households that have garbage internet or no internet at all can connect to internet at the speeds the year 2021 requires. 
They want to build thousands of new resilient transmission lines to help expand renewable energy, make going to the airport suck a little bit less, beef up our cybersecurity capabilities and protect our infrastructure from cyber attack, which is actually a huge deal. I don't really want to gloss over it because our outdated infrastructure is actually a huge liability from a national security standpoint. Can you imagine what would happen if somebody actually hacked the electric grid? It would be, it would be so screwed. Okay, sorry. What else? Um, oh, pollution. And there's also about $8 billion in funding for water projects in western states that are suffering from ongoing drought and extreme heat. Shout out to California. The bill is solid, but it is significantly smaller than the $2.6 trillion proposal Biden rolled out in March. Biden's original proposal covered six major areas, transportation, utilities, pollution, innovation, in-home care, and buildings. Innovation, in-home care, and buildings, all three of those categories were scrapped. Those categories are pretty popular, and I could make the case for investing in all of them, but the one that I'm really heartbroken to lose is innovation. Biden's initial proposal included $566 billion in funding for research on climate change and energy and investments into U.S.-based manufacturing. COVID taught us a lot of things, but one lesson that we all learned was the dangers of being so dependent on overseas manufacturing. Our supply chain came to a screeching halt, and the price of most goods shot up, and it hasn't really come back down. I mean, it also would have been a jobs engine, so I just, I really hate to lose it. Of the three remaining areas, we saw a significant reduction in both utilities and transportation. Pollution cleanup is the only category that didn't shrink. It actually grew, uh, which is great. But in the transportation category, electric vehicle adoption really got shafted. The funding shrank by 90%, making it the biggest loser of the whole thing. Rural broadband and water infrastructure also saw sizable cuts. The exception would be for Western states, which, as I said, got a little bit of extra money to deal with the drought and the heat. Most of Biden's initial proposal was good. I liked it. But I like this plan even more because we didn't pass it the easy way. We could have pushed it through reconciliation. Republicans could have filibustered it so the Democrats just had to shut up or just go cry on cable news. But instead, we did the hard work of persuasion, deal making and compromise. I mean, Chuck Schumer, literally, as I record this, is pretty much taking the Senate hostage. He won't let them leave until <laughs> until they work this out and get it signed. It gives me hope on certain things Congress can still work. But there's a problem. Cut the cord. Are we human? Or are we infrastructure. Human infrastructure. That's what Democrats are calling the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package they've decided to push through reconciliation regardless of whether a single Republican agrees or not. This really leaves a bad taste in my mouth because honestly, I think it's a slap in the face to the Republicans that helped bring the first infrastructure bill to the finish line. And honestly, I don't think bills this big should be passed without securing even one vote from the other party. 47% of the country did not vote for Joe Biden. Ramming $3.5 trillion down the throat of 47% of the country without even trying to get their representatives on board is a bad way to go about governing. And fiscal hawks are not going to love a $3.5 trillion plan coming on the tail end of a $1 trillion infrastructure plan. That's a lot of spending all at once. And a lot of people are seriously concerned that they could overheat the economy. And I don't think that that's that crazy. The Democrats' human infrastructure bill has funding for childcare, housing, education, climate change, caregivers, 
And I think all of those issues are worthy of investment. In fact, they're some of the issues that I personally care the most about. They're also pretty politically popular, which is why passing issue-specific legislation on each of them would be the better way to go. But Democrats have decided not to do these things. They've decided to push through one of the largest spending plans ever. More than we spent on COVID relief. They've decided to push through a spending plan that big after two years of huge spending. Spending that I did support, by the way. COVID was an unprecedented situation that required unprecedented spending. But it's not just COVID. Trump's presidency added nearly $8 trillion to the national debt. And only $2 trillion of that was for COVID relief. We've been spending money like crazy, and that bill is going to come due. To make matters worse, our representatives refused to be the adult in the room and raise taxes. And don't get me wrong, I hate paying taxes. I really do. My friends know that. I call it the tax man. I'm very bitter about the whole thing. But you don't get to be a deficit hawk, right? You don't get to say, no, 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 we can't spend money that will add to the national debt. If you're not also going to say, here's an idea that I'm putting forward to help pay off the deficit, to pay off our debt, because we cannot just not spend money. That's not realistic. A deficit exists because we are spending more than we are taking in. If you want to stop adding to the deficit, we need to take in more than we are spending. And yes, you can do that with cuts, but I hate to say it, but at, at some point, guys, we are going to need to raise taxes. You don't get something for nothing. You can't just keep charging up the credit card bill and only making the minimum payment. And that's what we're trying to do literally right now as a country. So while housing, childcare, education, climate change, they're all very popular issues, they should all be worked on. But adding $3.5 trillion in spending without even securing a single Republican vote, that is not the way to do it. Which is why we are coming up on a standoff. Democrats have created a standoff situation for themselves. Progressive Democrats in the House, like AOC, say that they will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal. That's the hard infrastructure package we talked about in the beginning of this episode. Unless, unless moderate Senate Democrats like Cinema and Manchin vote for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. I'm not making this up. Listen. Well, I believe that the Progressive Caucus is uh, rather united in the fact that we will not support uh, bipartisan legislation without a reconciliation bill uh, and one that takes bold and large action on climate, drawing down carbon emissions, but also job creation and increasing equity uh, and resilience in for impacted communities, particularly frontline communities. And so uh, we've made that, that very clear and that a bipartisan agreement will not pass unless we have a reconciliation bill that also passes. And so that is where we've drawn a strong line. And I believe that uh, Speaker Pelosi, the White House, and uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have taken that threat quite seriously. They know that we fully intend on acting out on, on that if a reconciliation bill does not come to the floor of the House. She makes me so mad. She's basically saying that she and other progressive colleagues are prepared to nuke a piece of legislation that is bipartisan and supported by the majority of the country if they don't get 100% of what they want on a bill that is three times larger than the bipartisan agreement and only supported by half the country. Awesome. Great work. What gives you the right? Honestly, what gives you the right to deny the country infrastructure? This is why politicians get a bad rap and it it's this kind of stuff. 
They would rather deny the American people infrastructure investment that we so desperately need, stuff that will significantly improve the quality of life for millions of people and create millions of jobs, than do the hard work of persuasion, compromise, and deal-making. Kirsten Cinema, a moderate Democratic senator, voted to begin negotiations on that $3.5 trillion bill in good faith, though she said she didn't like the price tag because who does? $3.5 trillion is a lot of money. She said that she would vote to begin debate anyway because that's what a senator should do, and the progressive left exploded at her for not blindly supporting it without objection. This is not how you govern a country. This is a temper tantrum. Here's a clip I found of negotiations. I didn't do it! Okay. Everybody just calm down. Count of three, we're all gonna put down our guns. I have crossbows. We'll put down our weaponry on the count of three. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. One, two, two, three. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have both said that they won't push through hard infrastructure without a reconciliation bill. And that is insane. I think that Nancy Pelosi is one of the most brilliant political strategists that has ever walked the halls of Congress. Truly. The woman gets it done. I don't always agree with her, but she gets it done. And I love Uncle Joe, which is why I cannot understand why they would both sign off on something this stupid. It's cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's like saying, I want a full loaf of bread. And somebody's like, I don't have a full loaf. Do you want a half loaf? And they're like, mm, I'd rather starve. And that's where we're at right now. The hard infrastructure bill is likely to pass the Senate today. And then it will go back to the House where moderates and progressives will enter a standoff over the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure package. It's going to be spicy. I mean, I don't know if moderates will be able to broker a deal so that they're not contingent upon each other. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Either way, I'm going to keep you posted. That's it for today's episode, guys. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. As always, if you liked the episode, please like and subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating to help other moderates find the show. All right. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 